Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Catherine Ingram. The following is excerpted from Dharma Dialogues held in June 2017 in Lennox Head, Australia. It's called The Fog of Concepts. I also want to let you know that we're having a seven-day residential retreat in Umbria, Italy in October of 2018. If you're interested, please call or write to me directly through the contact info on our website. We live in a world of concepts. Concepts abound. Things that you just take for granted. They're so indoctrinated that you just don't even think about it. And you don't realize it's just a concept. It's actually not true in a sense. For instance, here's a big one. The so-called Southern Hemisphere, right? You picture the Southern Hemisphere as the bottom of the planet. The bottom half. But who says? Because it's just floating in space. There's no up and down in space, right? It's just an orb in space. (laughs) But it's always pictured as the bottom. Almost always. Sometimes there are these very hip maps now that have it upside down. (laughs) In fact, borders, even names of countries in my lifetime, a number of countries have changed names, have changed entire... They look different on the maps now because they're a different name. <laughs> Burma, for instance, now is Myanmar, and several others. When I was young, I, in fact, just the other day, a young man interviewed me, and... He's in his 30s, and he was asking me about, was I, you know, was I always interested in environmentalism, right? And I said to him, this may seem really hard to believe, but when I was growing up, when I was a child, we didn't know we lived in an environment. (laughs) Isn't it true, Tina? We didn't think in those ways. You didn't think you lived in an environment. You didn't, it wasn't a concept. And we were also indoctrinated with, this may seem also hard to believe to anyone who's younger. I know it sounds like I'm speaking about the dark ages, but when I was growing up, doctors would be on television, real doctors would be on television in, in, um, for cigarette ads saying that cigarette smoking was good for you. <laughs> really. <laughs> so everybody smoked, all the adults. I was a child, so I wasn't smoking. But, uh, you know, you, you smoked because you thought it was good for you, and it was, of course, addictive, so you kept smoking. These kinds of concepts, some of them are innocuous, some of them are dangerous. But what's interesting to begin to pay attention to is the ways that we are living our lives based on concepts and some of the concepts are very well practiced well rehearsed ones that we tell ourselves about ourselves we have certain concepts and beliefs about ourselves that are ancient but that may not be true Right? Just like smoking really isn't good for you. 
<laughs> so in this quietness that I recommend as your modality of being, the discernment about concepts starts to sharpen. And you can hear it, you can sense it. Because we're all flooded, even here in this region, there are a lot of what I call new age concepts that everyone subscribes to. Not everyone, but a lot of people. They're just in, they're floating in the culture. And as one gets quieter and more sort of radically authentic in oneself, you can hear those concepts as they are bandied about, even though lots of people are saying them and it's just assumed. You can, you're, you're, your awareness is picking up on them, and you don't necessarily have to subscribe. So this applies across the board. It's a kind of intelligence that, and I've been speaking about this a lot recently, that is willing to go it alone in, in an homage to truth. Right, You're willing to basically see it differently than everybody else because you're not subscribing to the imposed concept. <laughs> when we look at a lot of our assumptions about not just the external things, but our internal reality, we discover there just a lot of stories that one has been indoctrinated with, kind of in a self-indoctrination. What if those became more and more suspect to you and you started to feel more and more like a mystery to your own self? Right? The other day I was afflicted for a little while with a story arising that I miss my family and I miss my people. Right? I, you know, it, was, it ran on for a while. It was a big story that was running. It kind of had, you know, sad elements to it. Um, you know, it had this story about it. I'm living in exile. <laughs> so because I'm pretty well practiced with examining my stories, and especially the troubling ones, I started saying, well, exile from what? <laughs> and, um, and I started really, you know, getting under it and looking at it and, and unpacking it and realizing, you know, nobody forced me here. <laughs> And that there were very good reasons for coming. <laughs> and I was just, just noticing the way that the old concepts, the old story was starting to take over. You know, that um, one can just make oneself sad with your own concepts. And then you can also snap out of them and just basically say, well, hang on a minute, is this really true?
And then you fall into quiet, as did I the other day. Just not make a big fuss about anything. Okay, well, that's what I had to say for today. This brought me back to, um, I think it was two years ago, and I'd flown to Holland to see my parents. Um, And my father used to be very opinionated and even more so towards the end of his life. And I was going to spend three weeks mainly with him. My mother has got dementia, so she doesn't have many concepts or opinions or anything running anymore, (laughs) but my dad does, or did. And um, I'd come off the plane and I was in my rental car um, and I'd been flying for 36 hours or on, on, on the way for 36 hours or so. And I was in the car and suddenly it hit me. And I'd heard it before, I knew it before, but suddenly it was like all beliefs that anyone has has been passed on from someone else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any original beliefs. Right. It, this <laughs> is, this is um, not the same thing as saying somebody's direct experience, which isn't a belief, right? One yes. can have a direct yes. know, knowing. Yeah, yeah. But anything you're just accepting, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and I don't know why after 36 hours of flying, et cetera, it, it just hit me like that. But it was like the whole world opened up mm. and it was so useful. Yes, it's very <laughs> helpful. <laughs> to be with my father for three weeks <laughs> and realizing that it wasn't just my beliefs that had been passed on, but his beliefs had been passed on to him yeah. as well. Yes, and absolutely. It somehow made it easier to be with him and, and, and to realize with, with anyone in the world that it basically is like that. Yes, you're, one, you're usually talking to people who are very, very conditioned. Yeah. I one time interviewed Krishnamurti, do you know? Um, and I began a, a question with the words, Sir, do you believe? And he put his hand up, stopped me mid-sentence, and he said, I don't believe in anything. I actually titled, it was a cover story for East West Journal, I titled it, it's on the cover, I Don't Believe in Anything. Um, And it was such an arresting, powerful statement, right? It's so refreshing. Yeah, it is refreshing, yeah. And and it it, it totally frees you up of the dogma and of the the hand-me-down you know so-called ancient wisdom and because there is there is ancient wisdom uh, in my opinion <laughs> um to be had because you know there are certain things you hear and they're true in your heart right so they're still true but there's a lot of stuff that's handed down under the guise or the the rubric of ancient wisdom that's just nonsense right and again, this, the, then it falls into the category of belief. I mean, we're, we're afflicted on the planet with the true believers. They're, they're impossibly dangerous, you know, and there's no getting through to them because they live entirely within a tautology that is closed loop. And so uh, 
you know, we watch this with a wary eye. And you also know, even in less dramatic circumstances, when you're talking to someone, there's a Zen story of um, a professor goes to meet this Zen master. And the professor is full of his beliefs and his opinions and his great knowledge. And the Zen master is just quietly serving him tea, preparing the tea. And the Zen master then starts, you know this story, of course. And the Zen master starts pouring the tea. And now the tea cup is overflowing and it's going onto the saucer and onto the table and the professor shouts out stop, what are you doing? It's completely full and the Zen master says, like you (laughs) you're so full of your opinions and concepts that nothing else will go in you know And it is like that. You meet people sometimes and you realize there's no real room for them to have a a fresh awakening of any kind, you know, because you're just talking to a program that is thick. And of course, as you say, they've been indoctrinated. You know, they inherited it. One of the things that I uh, consider a lot in the, on a path of Dharma is that it, it, it lends you into being a free thinker. You know, that when you do think, that it's, it's a lot freed up from the conditioned concepts and the programming. Here's an image that just came to me. Um, somebody, I, I read his work a lot, he was describing how when... When he and his wife go to memorials for friends, they prefer almost to go to the religious ones because they're listening to a bunch of nonsense, right, about the dearly departed. And by somebody who's basically just speaking on an agenda about some afterlife and doesn't really even perhaps know the dearly departed, Like, it's just all concepts. And he and his wife prefer that almost because it's not very emotional. And it doesn't give rise to the grief that you would otherwise be feeling. It gives rise more to annoyance. Whereas when you go to one, a more secular memorial, where the friends are all, you know, reading letters from the dearly departed and reciting poetry and playing his or her favorite music and telling beautiful stories, you know, it just breaks your heart again in the, in the grief of it. And so that's the difference. It's like you, you're feeling it, you're feeling it in the moment. You're feeling the, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're listening to a bunch of concepts, I saw actually in the book that you were, is that right, you were a war correspondent in Cambodia? I don't know if that's... I I wasn't a... I just did... I did one uh, phase on the the Thai-Cambodian border. You hear stories of people in war, people who are soldiers and things, 
and all people involved in conflicts like that, they actually, it puts them really in the moment yes. because they don't know absolutely from one minute to the next yeah. if they're going to live and somehow it gives them more life. They feel completely alive yep. um, because of this uncertainty. And uh, I guess I could, you know, I put that into a relationship where there's, like all relationships perhaps, where there's so, un- un- uncertain, so much uncertainty about where it's going to go and... and um, and that when one is put into, is thrown into a conflict, then one is sort of somehow more, more alive, more conscious, more, um, more aware of what's really important. You could say. Yeah, I think that I think sometimes that is the case. Um, you know, sometimes yeah, sometimes it's true. Yeah, I've noticed yeah. it's not all the time. No, yeah. and um, and to your point about the the aliveness that one feels in extreme acute circumstances where life and death is on the line. Yes, uh, that has been looked at a lot over the years and written about a lot in very um, interesting ways. Um, For instance, there was an article many years ago uh, in Esquire magazine. It was called Why Men Love War. And it was just this very point, how on the battlefield, there's this heightened awareness. There's real present awareness. It's life and death awareness. And also, the kind of camaraderie that men have in those circumstances is very intense, such that they've done interviews with guys who were in World War II, let's say, and they often have been the, their buddies that they were you know, uh, soldiers with are their best friends for life. And also they will report that often their dreams take place from that that time long ago because it's almost like the aliveness was so, you know, so much more intense in those circumstances. I've known a lot of mountain climbers over the years, same thing. There's a certain heightened intensity when you're, you know, you're risking your life in those ways. Um, I feel that one can come to that kind of aliveness in more gentle ways, um, you know, more (laughs) calm ways. And that that's also fair enough to do is, you know, to kind of start to tune to that channel and feel the aliveness. It may feel a little more subtle, but it's nevertheless there. And that that becomes a nice, refreshing taste. That kind of, you know, kind of a, a, a bubbling of aliveness instead of a kind of explosive aliveness. Um, it's more of a kind of current that's running. I did do a, 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 a little stint of for a, a reporting that I did on the Thai Cambodian border and hanging out in the refugee camps along the Thai side of the border. But all that whole area, like just going back to my uh, guest house where I was staying from the camps, we were driving on roads that were laden with landmines. And... Um, and in the camps themselves, 
there were so many people missing legs from those area that area of being it was being it had been so heavily mined so even now all these many years later the the memory of that is so intense you know it's like i couldn't sleep the whole time i was there for about 4 days i couldn't sleep um you know, there was just this heightened, heightened, heightened aliveness. Now, I felt it very as a very nervous energy, as a very uncomfortable energy, but definitely alive. You know, definitely a feeling of, wow, you know, um, and a kind of, um, I mean, I wasn't depressed or anything during it, but I was nervous. I was very, it was a, a fluttery aliveness, if you're following me. So, um, to kind of make distinctions in a way, in your own case of your own nervous system. Catherine, you started by sharing, um, well, what I label some homesickness. Is that right? Yeah. Feelings of homesickness. Yeah. And it made me think... um, I think I suffer from a chronic sense of homesickness, even though I'm home. Yeah, yeah. And I wondered if you would talk about that. I, I read um, a little quote once that said, life is a journey that's homeward bound. And, you know, I stick to that like glue. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, one day I'll be home. Yeah. Um, but I'm, you know, it, it doesn't trouble me terribly, but I'm curious about it. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually spoken a lot about homesickness, not in not in the case of me being uh, far from home myself. That's a relatively recent thing. But over the many years, I've spoken a lot about homesickness because it's something that comes up uh, for people. And there is this sense of, well, the thing is, you kind of, you do know when you're having moments where you feel like you're right on your your seat of your home, right? There are those times where you feel this is exactly where I'm meant to be and supposed to be and I feel at home, right? There are moments. Now, my position is that the more you spend time in this kind of mystery of yourself, of just being the more moments of that feeling at home that you have. And it's not about, then it becomes not about place and not about who's around and and not about any externality, but it's you being comfortable in your own skin, you living at home in yourself. Because one can chase around the planet I had a girlfriend, she died, but uh, she said to me many years ago, we were sitting, we were sitting at her spectacular beach house that her husband owned, um, one of their several houses. She was French, actually, but she was living in America. She'd, want, she'd grown up wanting to live in America. Now she was living in America, had this fabulous life in these houses and big life, you know, traveling. And, and she said to me one night, the two of us were having dinner, and she said, I feel this incredible homesick, but I don't know where home is. Right? So clearly, it wasn't about 
play. It wasn't about a particular place. It's some other kind of yearning. And that, that is exactly what gets addressed in this kind of context. That you just sink into being and you start feeling grateful. Right? And you feel more and more at home in yourself. And again, the concepts that arise that tell you, well, I would feel at home if, fill in the blank, right? That becomes, you begin to really suspect these kinds of concepts, right? You realize these are not allies. These are, you know, disturbing little uh, conditioned patterns, can you just give me an example of that? I would feel at home if... Well, for instance, the one that I, that I mentioned in my own case, just because it's current and it was recent rather, uh, you know, I would feel at home if more of my loved ones lived here nearby, right? Well, that's going to be just a troubling thought. <laughs> And what if I could just feel at home in my own self? That would be simpler, right? And actually, it might even not even be true if they were living nearby. I might feel oppressed. <laughs> you know, so many things like that. You realize you just, you sort of self-induce the trouble and the feeling of not being at home. A lot of it, honestly, is like a toggle switch. It's, it's sort of like you can say, I don't feel at home, and then you won't feel at home. You can say, I feel really at home here, and you will. <laughs> right? A lot of, a lot of our, our, our experience of whatever moment we're having is basically like a toggle switch. So is this our quest on our journey? Um, I guess ultimately it is the driving component of the journey of the so-called spiritual search is to finally feel at home in oneself. Mm -hmm. But that's not thing you have to attain or find in some external way. It's something you realize that is whispering to you in many, many different ways. Right? It's whispering to you. I've been playing with this kind of conflicting... I keep moving my my mind keeps moving it from being still nothing to do nothing to achieve um, and in that comes a realization well apart from financial constraints that I'm not going to travel much and see all the beautiful places in the world that have been on a long gone bucket list <laughs> to 
yeah, I still want to get, I still want to get to Morocco and I still want to get to Italy and, and this kind of, yeah, I've got this kind of, it just, it flips and then it's, no, I really want to learn about such and such and have all these wonderful experiences. And some of that is, um, well, there's a bit of victim in there of, well, I can't actually do it, I don't actually have the physical energy and I don't have the finances, so I don't want that quietness to be like a victim place of, well, it's all okay. Yeah, yeah. But there is this, and, and I, I am, you know, I'm learning to be content in that quiet but there is this other stuff going on that all right well let's just say let's just find the middle somewhere along the way i've labeled my quiet non-doing life as boring maybe it's just a concept but it's like well i'm boring now (laughs) i'm really boring Because people have got stories to tell about things they're learning and travel and all the wonderful places they go. Yeah, so that's, I'm starting to believe that about myself. And what if you didn't? What if you didn't believe this? Well, it's just fascinating even articulating it that it's, that whole pattern is becoming clearer because yes. I don't think I was aware until I picked up the mic that this duality is going on, or polarity, yeah. really. Yeah. And by the way, it's common, what you're describing, you know, it's very common uh, for people to come to a certain point in life where perhaps a lot of the former interests and the running about and the engagement is not as much as it used to be. And that there can be then an interpretation of like, well, is this like, you know, some sort of um, retirement of from the world, you know, or is this a prelude to dying? Or those are the kinds of things that people, people label it. Um, I mean, I, it, again, it's a concept. Yeah and can be superimposed with another understanding, which is your actual direct experience, with, which is that either you don't feel like it or you can't afford to. Um, those are, you know, valid things whereby you basically say, oh, no, this is the suchness of it. And I say yes to it. This is how it is. And meanwhile, I'll get on with living my beautiful day. I. Another one above ground. <laughs> that are numbered, right? Sure. So it's, it's you, you kind of get very real with yourself, very kind of... Um, yes, sadly, I don't feel I'm sitting in gratitude with it. So maybe the the conflict is larger than what I actually realize. Or maybe you're just coming into term you're coming to terms with the conflict 
right? You're, you're, you're now putting the blaze of awareness on it. And now perhaps you can start to direct the mind into more, you know, powerful adjustments as it arises. That sometimes it does take your own mental intervention yeah. with the concepts and the conditioned mind. You have to basically... Have to you have to intervene and say, wait a minute, I don't really believe this anymore, and I don't want to believe this anymore. I don't want to uphold this to myself, no matter how long I've practiced it, right? And and what you're describing is very, like I say, it's very common. It's very usual for many people to come to a point where they feel, you know, somehow my life is over, or the 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 exciting part is over. And I would really challenge that. I do challenge that in my own case. I mean, my life is very different from what it has been, um, you know, for all of my adult life. It had a different pace and a different level of engagement and all of that. And, and But now, for the most part, I revel in this new way. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm just making it um, harder on myself by labelling myself as being boring. Now. Yes. Yeah, and that's a concept I've, yeah. Yes. A lot of times we, we uh, the label has to do with how you imagine others might see you. Right. Like you might think from the outside, it looks like my life looks boring. Like you can't really feel that boring to yourself, right? You're this, I mean, you're just how you've always been probably as to yourself, right? Am I boring to myself? <laughs> that's, a, that's an interesting question. <laughs> No, I have to think about that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I am. No. No. So, but so, where's the boring part? How is your life boring? Unless it's a that you imagine it should look some other way to either you or some other people. It's it's. Um Yeah, if I was engaging with someone like me who didn't have much to say, then, I mean, there's a lot of stillness, but how's their engagement and connection and... Right, but... Does that make sense? Yeah, again, though, you're, you're projecting yeah. as to how people see you. Mm, um, and I, having talked to you one-on-one, -on -one, I seriously doubt that many people would see you that way. And, and the, the contradiction there is I'm really drawn to people who are still and have very quiet energy yes. and don't even have much to say. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that when they're grounded and so, yeah, that's... That is ironic. <laughs> I know, me too. I mean, I love that too. I love both. I love, you know, but yes, I mean... You know, people who are whose energy is just really peaceful. 
Right. And, and just lovely and who are quiet. It's really nice to have around, really nice to be with in any context, you know. Yeah. I sometimes tell this story about being a teenager and one of my best friends, her name was Ginny Jondro. Um, she and I would just cruise around together. We would just hang out. We would just literally cruise around together. And I don't remember anything about her other than that. I mean, I don't remember... I don't even remember if she had siblings. I, I, I don't know anything about her personal history. We just were being together. That was what we were up to. We were... It was just like the vibe was just smooth. <laughs> and, um, and I sometimes talk about that in Dharma Dialogues because it's so pleasant to just sort of, you know, cruise along with somebody in a simple way that might be nothing more than having tea or sitting and watching the waves. I mean, it just really... Those for me... that. Apparently, that always was very appealing to me, you know, and and that is certainly very appealing to me at this phase of life. Thank you. You're welcome. I love how when I come, it's usually on topic completely for me. I've been feeling had quite a lot of loneliness the last couple of years and my daughter lives away from me and I've really been missing her. And I saw, went down and saw her recently and, and also my sister and family and, but something, and something, I found something shift in me in just really enjoying many things in the city in, in Melbourne. We went to the theatre and the concert and art gallery. But and the same question arises often for me about why am I living here? I've been here for 15 years now. And just that feeling of almost sometimes I, when I feel in fear, I think if I see my daughter four times each year for, and I live another 20 years. That's another 80 times I'm going to see her. That brings up sadness and grief and longing and things. But I've just been, something shifted in this last trip and it strangely shifted when I was coming, travelling back home, when I just, just felt so much more alive in each moment and found myself having a very engaging conversation with a young man who was sitting next to me who I sort of avoided talking to at first because I didn't want to be that person on the plane that you can't get rid of. <laughs> 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 of course, it's a short enough flight. <laughs> That's right. It's, it, it is. But I was kind of nervous because I'm a nervous flyer anyway and I found myself, I was in a gifted seat by my sister who'd flown me down for my birthday sort of week. And I was in 1E, which was, I, I wanted to be in an F or an A seat because I like being, looking out the window. Suddenly I was in this 1E. So first I had the, the safety thing all read to me, which was scary. You know, was I going, the woman said, you're going to be able to help in the case of an emergency. 
all that stuff. But this young man, I just looked at him and I said, well, you'll be doing the door. (laughs) (laughs) And then he sort of said this startling thing about, oh, I'm looking forward to being a hero. And I said, well, we won't be heroes. Because we're not not doing that, but if we do... If we have to. (laughs) But it just, it was just so much, I felt so much joy in being completely present and and having this lovely conversation with him and then getting off at Coolangatta, which is a challenge to get back down to here because there's no shuttles, and then walking out the front and finding a woman who had... Leone yoga at casino written on her car and just going to her and said, would you be willing to take me back home? And, you know, which she did. And that was... How how did you know she was going to Byron? I had no idea. Well, because she said casino, so... I live in Bangalore. You've got to go through Bangalore to go to casino, you oh, okay. see. So I just took a punt and okay, sure. she was dropping okay. off three crazy dressed women, you know, and, and so we had a, you know, there was another opportunity for another gorgeous yeah. conversation and and I really enjoyed what you said just before about the the quiet whisperings of things and I've really been finding more and more because I live by myself with a big tree like yours here and many birds come to to sing in that tree and be in that tree and animals and each day I'll see leaves or find myself looking at a feather or picking up something and just being in that, listening to what that thing has to say to me in yeah. that moment, yes. just sort of just going just moment by moment and the sweet, delicious excitement of what the next moment might bring. Yes. And that, yeah, wonderful space and so grateful that you are choosing to be here just half an hour's drive from my house. (laughs) How lucky am I? (laughs) Well, it's so nice to hear. Yeah. Yeah. But I love what you said, and and it's really the secret to happiness is is finding the little joys Mm. and being appreciative for peace and quiet and and all this, you know, and and the moments with so-called strangers who suddenly are now not strangers any longer and, you know, and, and even the frame of... You know, I, I can imagine that being a mother, it's such an intense relationship, you know, um, of course. And there's, you know, with one's own child, there's a, that special bond. But I also like to consider the opening of a channel of what you might call mother love, such that you're sitting next to the young man on the plane and he's somebody's son. And that's and that that that, that channel of mother love opens up and flows freely, right? And that is incredibly powerful and satisfying, you know. Yeah, I really love that idea. I haven't ever framed it like that, but I feel that we're all responsible for, you know, a five-year-old or a ten-year-old. You know, we're all responsible for each other in every moment. The more we care and connect. Yeah. And I think that is that connection feeling that I'm 
when I am with people, just some finding a connection without even trying, just the connection happens and there's a transmission that occurs just like it happens. Yes. Being here, sitting here now. Yes, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yes, lovely. Yeah, and as one hangs out on this frequency, it just happens a lot more. Yeah. You know, it's just, it becomes quite frequent. We use these gatherings as a way of, we're just really, we're not adding on anything. We're not really adding on any concepts, you know. It's really a releasing of a lot and being in a safe space to do that. And the power of it is that you you get a taste for it. You get a, And it's a familiar taste, but it's almost like you're, you're recognizing it as a familiar taste that you like. And it conditions on its own your awareness to kind of revisit that that frequency. So it's really the function of this is to deepen the um, experience of it such that you're, you know, it becomes more habitual when you're out and about. And it kind of creates what I call a, a holy haunting or a holy yearning for that. So when you're off in your workaday life or in engagements or whatever, and you might find yourself rattled or, you know, stuff is starting to roil up inside of you. It's like this Dharma bell goes off and this holy haunting starts happening. You start feeling, wait a minute, I miss that peaceful feeling. I, I want that. And the attention starts to move toward that experience again to taste it so that's the function of this kind of gathering it's it's kind of unusual in that most most any gathering you would go to with a bunch of people um, there's some there's some program you know there's some there's either music being played or someone's giving a lecture or in the case of spiritual gatherings often people are laying out a lot of concepts and some sort of practices that you're going to be doing um but in this we're really just steeping here in this wavelength in this vibration of sorts such that you're getting a strong taste of it. And you often don't even realize it until you leave. You, you know, there's something, you realize you go out back to your car and you realize you feel differently than when you arrived. <laughs> this has been In the Deep. You can find the entire list of In the Deep podcasts at katherineingram.com, where you can also book a private session by phone or Skype, see the schedule for Dharma Dialogues and Retreats, or make a tax-deductible donation in support of this work. Till next time. Mm-hmm.